You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. As this podcast explores with every episode, the theater industry and entertainment as a whole is a tough business to get started in and ultimately make it successfully. But as with any profession, there are those who just seem to make it look easy. They have a golden touch, so to speak, where everything they do or try to do seems to work out for them. And today's guest is someone I've known a little less than a year. But in that time, I've been so impressed with his abilities and confidence in this business. My name is E. Clayton Cornelius. I am originally from Pittsburgh, PA, home of the Steelers. And I live in New York City, have been for 25 years. And I consider myself a Broadway TV actor, investor, and producer in New York City. E. Clay has been a part of 10 Broadway shows in the ensemble, as an understudy in swing, as well as in starring roles, and even as a producer. And in one of those, he made an appearance in voiceover. And it was in last year's production of 42nd Street at the Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut that E. Clay and I met for the first time and worked together. Now, that sounds familiar. You also heard previous guests, Lisa Howard, Blake Stadnick, and Kate Baldwin, who were all in that production as well. And so it is E. Clay's diversity of work that we'll be talking about today. It'll shed light on the fact that things haven't been as easy for him as it may seem. He's had to overcome some definite obstacles and gather a bit of persistence along the way. He'll tell us about the mistake he made that actually brought him to New York, the injury that caused him to reevaluate his career, and the national tour that eventually led this singing actor into producing theater as well. So from the bright lights of Broadway to his own quiet moments of reflection, we'll hear about a career that is always evolving and the resilience it takes to navigate this ever-changing industry. Sometimes we're hit with challenges, and I think those challenges, it's just God saying, hey, I want you to go down this path. I'm putting a shift in your life because something needs to happen now. And you have to go, something's happening, there's a shift happening, and I need to listen to it. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode here on Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning theater podcast hosted by yours truly, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships, with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Welcome, E. Clay. I am so happy to get to be with you again and to have you here on the podcast. I'm so grateful that you're here. I am thankful to be here. <laughs> I love you. So that's why I am here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Kate Baldwin was on last season, and I'm hey. so happy that you get to be here now. She was great to talk to, and I absolutely loved working with you because you and I were in the, the men's dressing room with all the, the chorus boys. Yes, we were. And I loved it. <laughs> you were my saving grace. <laughs> I know. It was. Goodspeed is an experience. Had you worked at Goodspeed before? Uh, yeah, I worked at Goodspeed at Chester uh, at their other uh, theater um, down the road. And I did, a, um, I guess, a workshop of Romeo and Juliet, the musical written by our own Terry Mann. How did that go? Uh, it was wonderful. I, I actually thought it had a lot of potential and legs and I thought it was going to go somewhere. And, um, uh, we had a great time. We had some great people, uh, you know, uh, in, in our show, um, a lot of like wild horn people actually. And, um, you know, state, uh, state, safety, uh, Fernandez and Liz and Ward land, Liz Ward and her husband. And, um, anyway, so, uh, the show ended up going to Minneapolis, at one of their uh, huge regional theaters there. And um, it, I think it just fizzled, didn't do anything after that, uh, which I really feel that they should bring that back out of the, the closet or the, the trunk <laughs> and dust them that off and, and, and get to that. Yeah, you just never know when it comes to shows. I mean, even our own 42nd Street that we did at Good Speed, it has hopes and dreams of a life beyond Good Speed. But uh, yeah, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But that that was back in the '90s, so it was good to kind of go back uh, and do actual good speed on the actual main stage, and um, you know, be a part of this star-studded cast. I thought, you know, the lineup was fantastic. You, Kate, Max, Lisa, it was just insane. Just to you know, Eloise Croft is like you know the the best of the best on stage. So I I was very happy and honored to be a part of the cast. Oh, oh, as was I. It was my Goodspeed debut, and it was a, a wonderful summer of doing shows there. So uh, I was grateful to get to be a part of it, and certainly meeting you. And, and we had we had we had a lot of fun in the dressing room together. Yeah, I, <laughs> I enjoyed that. Well, for story number one, we're going to go back a little further, just a little further back when you came to New York City at the age of nineteen, with your bags all packed, you were ready to go, and you thought you had booked a chorus line. However, you soon realized after getting here that you actually still had to audition for it. <laughs> now, now, what caused this miscommunication? Yeah. yeah, that was my naive 19-year-old brain, I suppose. I don't know. I, You know, you come here with um, hopes and maybe sometimes you don't get the, you know, all the information. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. It was a really weird story, but um, you know, back in the 90s, uh, in uh, 96, I did the national tour of Chorus Line with Bayork Lee. It was the bus and truck non-union tour. 
Uh, I left that tour and because um, I went on for Richie Walters, I was the understudy for Richie at that time. I was just butch and understood it for Richie. That's just sort of what the other black guy did in the show. And um, I crashed the audition and I got into that company and um, uh, our Richie Walters was fired or something happened. And I ended up taking over the role for like a month and a half. And I just knew that I was going to take over the role. I was going to be bumped up. Everybody was loving me. And Bayork came back to the show, uh, saw the show. And I guess her motto at that time was once an understudy, always an understudy. And basically made a decision. The company manager sat me down and had like a dinner with me and said, you know, I know you were hoping to move forward with playing the role of Richie, but um, it's not going to happen this time. And basically told me like Bayork made a decision to keep you in that position of understudy. And I said, absolutely not. I will be leaving. And um, you can let her know that I really appreciate it, but I, I don't think that, that this is for me. Um, so when I saw her the next day, I went up to her just, in, you know, with positive vibes saying, thank you so much, Bayork, for teaching me the show and from you and the choreography and everything, you know, as an original member. And she basically looked at me and said, what time is your flight tomorrow? And I yeah. looked at her and said, um, 9 a.m. And she's like, great, have a nice flight. That's all she said to me. Wow. Because I knew she was pissed. Yeah. So, um, they were doing a chorus line at my college and I, um, I was supposed to be in that production at, probably as Richie because <laughs> I was like one of the only black guys in my class at that time in the, in the, you know, late nineties. And, um, I went back to see the show, but I also heard that she was doing another production of the chorus line at downtown cabaret theater in Connecticut. So one of my teachers told me that. So I decided to take my picture resume opening night and give it straight to Missy Hamilton sort of being gutsy. And uh, I saw her, gave her my picture resume, and she was like, what is this? I said, oh, I hear you're looking for, you know, a possible Richie in your production in downtown Cabaret, and here's my headshot resume, and I just got off the bus and truck, and she was like, uh-huh. And she basically, <laughs> like, just kept going, handed the resume to her assistant. Well, two weeks later, I got a call from them saying, we want you to come audition for the show. And I said, no, I, I really can't. I'm just doing something here. I was doing like a little show or something in Pittsburgh. And so I got a call and the, the next week and they kept calling me and they kept calling me at this point. I had thought that they had given me the role. They're like, we just need you to come up. And I really don't know exactly what was said, but it, it made me feel that I had this role of Richie and that they wanted me immediately. I packed all my bags. I got the information. I went up, I stayed like on a friend's couch and uh, I got there and I called the producer and, or the casting and casting said, oh yeah, you guys, you have to come to the studio. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went to the studio and I was a little confused. I was like, I, I'm confused. Is this where rehearsal is happening? They're like, no, this is where the audition's happening. I was like, oh my God. It was an audition and it was between two guys. It was between me and the guy who was playing Richie on the tour that I just finished. So I knew that I could, you know, maybe out dance him and out sing him because we were just on tour together. But I was a little frightened that I paid money at 19 years old to come all the way to New York and <laughs> had this thing in my head where I thought I had the job and I didn't. So I auditioned for the show. I was nervous and, um, 
uh, at, at the audition, Mitzi Hamilton said, after I sang, she was like, oh, well, you don't seem like a flake. And I said, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, Bayork told me that you were a flake. Oh and I gosh. said, well, okay. Uh, all right. And I said, well, no. And I told her like what my side of the story was. And she goes, well, okay. I, I can, I can totally see and understand why she said that or, or, and, and what happened. And I said, okay. So I went back to my friend's couch, worried that I had to go right back home to Pittsburgh and I was going to get cast and, um, found out that they actually were going to go with me. So I did get the job. And um, I negotiated my equity card all in that same conversation. So I ended up turning equity with that show at Downtown Cabaret Theater. In wow. Ta-da. But Bayark and I are great friends now. We're best of buddies. Um, I actually just finished doing a chorus line um, for her at CLO this past summer. My last time ever because I hurt my every muscle in my bone body because I was Richie. Never thought I'd do that role again. But um I sent her eight years of Christmas cards after that, you know, debacle of our relationship. And uh, it seems that the Christmas cards worked because she ended up casting me in the Broadway revival in uh, 2006. So we are definitely, you know, back to being really great friends. And it was just a little hiccup in our relationship back in the 90s. It's so interesting how personally sometimes people in this business can take things when it seems like we should all understand. It's like you were understudy. Now you're actually playing the role and you want to keep being a principal. You want to keep doing those kind of roles. Then why mm -hmm, wouldn't someone, mm -hmm. especially in her position, who has done principal roles, why wouldn't they understand that that's what you want to do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a different time. You know, this is, you know, we're, we're definitely past you know, um, you know, the uh, BLM movement and, and treating actors with respect. And we're growing into a whole different world right now. But back in the 90s, you know, there was a lot of personal chips on shoulders and, and, and a lot of, you know, uh, boxes for actors, I think, at that time. So I, I think that we were just in a, in a different time at that, at that point. Now, if you had realized that this was just going to be an audition and not an offer, would you have still moved to New York or was that inevitable anyway? Uh, I would have still moved to New York, but I just think that my naivete and uh, thinking that I had something and I didn't was, I think, was very, you know, young of me. I have no idea. Like, I don't I don't can't even remember, like, why did I? take my big two suitcases and why didn't I get that information that I didn't have the job and it was an audition? Like, I don't know how that all sort of got skewed, but <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> now being in Pittsburgh, you know, it's, it's relatively close to New York. So were you at least accustomed and, and knew what to expect moving to New York? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I used to take the bus all the time from college and I actually didn't finish college. I actually, um, cause I ended up getting an uh, honorary degree I actually came to New York my senior year. And that was why I wasn't in that production of the course line. I was supposed to be, that was, that would have been my senior year. I just started working in New York out of 1996 and started touring with that, a course line. And then it just kept going from there. So, um, I was just very fortunate to just always work and always keep working. Was that tough for you moving to New York or did you find the audition process to be similar to what you experienced in Pittsburgh? You know, in Pittsburgh, uh, I was a part of a huge family, so I was always working there. And so when I 
got my first tour, which was The Wiz, actually, um, with Grace Jones, Peebo Bryson, Tony Terry, and Fifi Peniston, all these 90s artists. Wow. And it was, yeah, and it was the yeah. chit. It was the quote unquote Chitlin circuit at that at that point. I don't know if anybody out there knows what the Chitlin circuit is, but uh, um, what's <laughs> to say it's sort of like the Tyler Perry sort of world, you know, when he started. Um, yeah, I was I did a tour of the Wiz with all of those ninety artists back in like ninety six or whatever, and then the same company manager was on the Chorus Line tour, so that's how I got into a Chorus Line. And then from there, I got the equity card that we just spoke about and then just started working from that. And then actually Goodspeed was, I think, was my first regional sort of workshop thing that I did. So that was the Romeo and Juliet uh, that I did there, uh, Romeo and Juliet the musical at, at, at Chester. And then from there, just sort of started working. I think I did uh, my first professional job was the music circus in Sacramento. And I got my first Broadway show actually at the end of that season. and. From that point, I just kept wow. doing Broadway shows. Yeah. So I was came through the ensemble. Yeah. It certainly sounds like that even from the beginning, you were you were just on a different trajectory. Like I'm certainly comparing it to my start in Birmingham, Alabama, doing some summer stock and then doing a little here community theater and then slowly getting, you know, I did Disney World. That's how I got my equity card. Ah. You know, so there is no path when it comes to becoming a professional performer. But as far as like making it in New York and kind of on the Broadway trajectory, it seemed like that from the get-go, you were there doing tours, these very high-tier regional productions at Sacramento and Goodspeed and elsewhere. So did you feel like that you were kind of a step ahead of, of others that were trying to make it? I, I, I don't necessarily feel of as a step ahead. Um, I, I think I had some really good things happen to me at the beginning of my career. I guess I wasn't afraid, you know, of asking for those things. And I think that's where the um, discrepancy sometimes is with people. You can't be afraid to ask for what you want. I asked for my equity card for that, of course, mine, or I probably would have still been non-union. And I think sometimes actors just have to open their mouths and just when they don't have representation to be the representation. You have to ask the question, what's the worst they're going to say? No. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then you move on with life. But I think I just wasn't afraid to ask for what I wanted. And it put me and it got me some really great things. And it put me in some really good places so that I could move forward to the next thing. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, getting to story number two, we're going to fast forward a few years to 2009. And this one, you were in another national tour with Dirty Dancing. And during that run, you tore your ACL. Oh, I what, did. How exactly did that happen? You know, I, I really don't consider myself a 
you know, I, I guess I am a trained musical theater dancer. I went to college for musical theater and all of that good stuff. But I guess I, 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 I'm not an alien dancer. Right? I'm like, you know, I'm not like a, you know, a professional, uh, you know, dancer is what we call professionals and dance companies. But, you know, I just didn't take care of myself as, as well I, as I do now and what I've learned over the years. You know, I was always going from ensemble to ensemble, hairspray ensemble to Lion King First National and, you know, just doing a lot of that stuff. And I think I was at a point where I wanted to start doing roles and, and more featured stuff because I was always an understudy, always a standby, always doing those types of things. And that injury helped me make that decision of like, oh, I guess I have to sort of stop now dancing the way I do in some of these shows because I had a dance partner in my hand at the end. You know, I had the time of my life, you know, in that song. And I didn't have the time of my life because I went down and uh, tore my ACL. And um, I, it just, I, it was just a, a thing that happened. And I thought, okay, well, this is just going to change things. And I had to take like a year off. But right at the end of that year, I had a brace on my knee and went back to auditioning. And something in my, in my head clicked, actually, when I hurt myself. There was a special interview that happened on The View with Anika Nani Rose, which actually helped that click in my head. And um, I just, my career sort of took off in a different way from that point. Because of the injury, you decided to adjust the types of roles or the things you would go out for, or how did it change? Well, you know, in this interview on The View, I saw Anika Nani Rose, and, and this was when she got that Princess and the Frog, uh, the Disney movie. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were interviewing her and, you know, she was now gone from, you know, being a musical theater star to now going to be nationally known and being in movies and things. And they asked her, now that you're auditioning with the Beyonce's of the world and, and all these other big major stars, like, does that scare you? Like, like, what do you do when you go into audition room now? And I was listening intently and she said, I just give 100% of myself and I don't think about anybody else and just think. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to give 100% of myself. I'm going to kill it. I'm just going to give you everything. And then when I leave, I know I've done my job. And don't worry about anybody else. For some reason, whatever she said in that interview, I just clicked in my brain. And I just said, why am I so scared? I need to just give 100% of myself. And um, I remember auditioning with my brace on my knee, still, still kind of injured, but able to still move. I auditioned for four things and got all four things. And one of the four things was uh, one of the leads in Smokey Joe's Cafe at Paper Mill with this amazing cast, Andrew Reynolds, Felicia Finley, uh, Carly Hughes, Maya Wilson. It's it just this huge cast at Paper Mill, which then that sort of brought me into the lead world. And um, right after that show, I ended up getting Scott's for a Boys on Broadway with Susan Stroman, which then brings me to first lead role out of Scottsboro, which was uh, Wonderland on Broadway. Yeah, playing the caterpillar. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting, the things that we hear or the things that happen to us. I mean, tearing your ACL is, is a horrible thing. And uh, as you said, you went mm -hmm. through a year of really recovering from it. Yet it seems like that it was a turning point as far as the way that you now approached your career, the, the way you approached even auditioning. Mm, yes, yeah. I, I started doing spoof songs. Uh, from that point, I said, you know, that whole give 100% of yourself. I said, 
what can I do to really stand out and just go balls to the walls? I called my good friend, Jay, Jay Lane Marcos. Um, she's now on, on the West Coast in LA, you know, doing her whole movie thing now. But she was a part of the Chorus Line family playing uh, uh, Connie Wong. And, you know, she's a brilliant comedian. And um, she used to take songs and rewrite them, just do spoofs. So I took Give Me the Ball, which is a song from a chorus line that Richie sings. And she, we rewrote it with my life. And I called it Give Me the Job. So I would go into these auditions and sing Give Me the Job, Give Me the Job <laughs> to all of these uh, casting directors. And it totally worked. I mean, I could go audition for an opera, but I would sing that song first and then do the legit. And it was always a good icebreaker. And so I think my, my whole brain just shifted at that point when I hurt myself. But it, I needed to hurt myself in order to get to that point in my life and in my career. So interesting. You mentioned that you kind of changed the way you take care of yourself. Now, how has your care regimen changed when you have to perform? You know, stretching, taking care of my body, making sure that I, I need what I need as a performer. Everybody's different. And not saying yes to everything that these crazy choreographers want you to do. Um, you know, since my knee injury, you know, I, I definitely, when I come into shows, like, you know, just working with uh, Ain't Too Proud with Sergio um, uh, uh, and uh, Dez, uh, Sergio would look at me all the time, the choreographer, and say, you know, hey, we want you to spin down to your knee. And I go, okay, Sergio, I can't spin down to my knee. I had surgery <laughs> 2009. I want to be kind to myself. And so you have a compromise. Like, can we just do a little something else? And, you know, and I just know what I can do that will get me through eight shows a week rather than me trying to be this circus clown on stage <laughs> for some of these choreographers. You just, you have to protect yourself. Well, yeah, it's a matter of thinking ahead, not just what you can do in the rehearsal room, because there's a lot we can do in a rehearsal room, but then you have to think ahead, but can I do it eight times a week, 52 weeks a year, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this really is, I guess, a furthering of you learning to say yes and say no, learning when to stand up for yourself. Yeah, you. Uh, it, it's, it's very important as an actor, as anyone, just to stand up for yourself in, in a most polite way. But, you know, you can't let people push you into these limits that, you know, people want to push you into. You have to protect yourself, you know what I mean, as, as an actor. And if, especially if, you know, you have to do eight shows a week, you have to stand up for yourself. You know, you can only give what you can and you can't let people push you into spaces that you, you don't want to be in. Exactly. Now, have you ever had pushback from it? Obviously, like working with Sergio, he was able to adjust choreography, but have you had pushback where people aren't as accommodating? Uh, you know, I think it is that tales all the time. It's like when you're young and when you don't have that much experience, people want you to just do it. I have had pushback and, and arguments, sort of like me and Bayork. Um, I had an argument with Des Mackinoff, uh when I first got the second national tour i was a part of the second national tour original cast of um jersey boys and there was a, a note that i couldn't sing and i had to sing it on like there was like this high riff that only titus burgess could sing but you know since it was set we all had to do it and you know i couldn't sing this one riff on the vowel that they were trying to get me to do it on and i was like can i do it in a, on a ooh vowel and he's like no it has to be on an e and it caused a lot of tension and a lot of back and forth between us. And I was very hesitant and wanted to do it my way. 
And I figured it out, you know, after a while. And I got to that point of finally not really giving in, but trying some different things to try to get me there. And, um, but it was, it was like, no, I want you to do it my way. And, you know, obviously Des and I were both younger at that point in time. And now we love each other very much. Like he probably will cast me in anything. He's the one that gave me the role that I'm doing right now on tour. Um, you know, I'm now playing Paul Williams on the national tour of ain't too proud. And he's also made me a part of the live capture movie of Jersey boys, uh, starring Nick Jonas which is coming out hopefully soon. But, you know, that was the same role that we were arguing about years ago. And now he's putting me in his movie. So it's it's just crazy how you just have to really just sort of stick up for yourself and try to find a compromise with said director, said choreographer, uh, if you can, and, and try to always give them what they want, but to do what you need to do at the end of the day. Yeah. And do you have like a checklist whenever you're first asked to audition, when you get an offer, do you have a checklist of things that will determine whether or not you accept it? Oh, yeah. As we get older or we get more seasoned in our career, you know, we we go, OK, I, I did that, done that. So now next time that comes around, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to ask for this now because I did give in or struggled a bit and suffered through whatever it is, turmoils or challenges that we do as, as actors. For example, I went in for Kinky Boots for the national tour, and this is when I thought I was done with tours. And they called me and said, we want you to come in for Lola. And I said, great. But as I started auditioning, I found out that it was a Lola understudy and possibly standby for New York. And I said, well, if I do get this job, I'm only interested in playing doing the standby for both New York or Broadway or Lola, you know what I mean? Or the role, but I don't want to do ensemble at all. I just want to do like a standby position. And as I was auditioning, they're like, well, we'll take that in consideration. And I guess I killed the audition because they offered me the standby. Like they actually made a standby position because there was no standby, standby position on the tour. Um, for Kinky Boots, and they actually took one of the ensemble tracks, which was the swing track, and took all the duties away and gave me the standby. So it just goes to show that if you are wanted and you stick up for what you want and put your foot down and just say, no, this is what I can give you at this time, that they will create a space for you if they really need you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, that leads us into story number three, which is that tour that you started in 2016 with Kinky Boots. However, it slowly became something you didn't enjoy as much. You weren't really loving your time there. So much so that it made you question your place in this industry. Well, what exactly led to your disliking this tour experience? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, mental health is a, is a thing. <laughs> and, um, 
I I just don't think that the I just don't I don't want to say anything horrible about it or but I just I didn't quite enjoy the people that I was with necessarily and the the atmosphere that was created at that time and maybe it was just me and where I was in my life uh, I had just finished three years of doing beautiful the Carol King musical on Broadway went to tour uh, and left beautiful for the tour. And standing by for this role. And I was really nervous. Like, I have done a lot of things in my career, but to play this drag role it was unfamiliar because I've never done drag before or done anything like that. I knew I could conquer the role, but I was just out of my comfort zone. And I just didn't really feel the support from my cast all the time. So, therefore, I was really nervous and I was always messing up. And things of that nature, when you know you don't have sort of like that support system around you or that you're not traveling, you know, and you're on tour, you you have to be a family. And when you don't have that, I, I just, my brain was just not with me. I was in a bad place. And it really made me question, do I want to be in this business anymore? Do I like this feeling? What do I want to do? And it really started making me think that I needed to change something. And I think that's why I started investing in producing quickly after that because my next show actually from that tour was ain't too proud this is where i started investing and uh now i have eight current investments across broadway and now i'm co-producing and lead producing and producing on broadway and off broadway so i mean i think maybe that had to happen too you know like sometimes we're hit with challenges and i think sometimes those challenges it's just god saying hey, I want you to go down this path over here. I'm putting a shift in your life because something needs to happen now. You have to take those as callings and not like frustrations necessarily. And you have to go, something's happening. There's a shift happening and I need to listen to it. So yeah, that's where I was in my brain at that time. And what exactly led you to producing versus directing or some other field? Uh, I was always a business guy. I was always sort of with it financially. And my dad was a big business guy. And and I have produced a lot of BCFA benefits on tour, actually. I was always that guy that would put together a big extravagant show with the cast of whatever on tour. And we would raise 10, 15,000, $20,000. Um, and I quickly realized like most benefits and things that happened with cast on tour weren't as extravagant as I was making them. <laughs> I was always going, you know, and doing the most and, and putting everything together from the ground up, from marketing to reaching out to people, getting donations. And I just quickly knew, like, I do this well. And what is this thing that I'm doing? Oh, it's producing. I'm producing a show. And, um, you know, I think that the way into producing is investing. You have to invest in a show as an investor to kind of know the process of what an investor goes through and how giving money and putting it towards the creative arts and what that process is. And then once you find out what that process is as an investor, you can then empathize with an investor who's giving you money for a show as you co-produce it or you fundraise for a show. And when you're asking people for said funds for shows, you can say, I've done this my own self. I know what this process is. Like, this is what's going to happen so that everyone feels comfortable, you know? So I think that is sort of the way into producing as well. 
but we could sit here and talk all day about producing it. <laughs> <laughs> I know because it, one of the things with 42nd Street that you started to put some feelers out and was wondering if some of the cast of that show wanted to be. And it's not very common that actors are also producers. There's kind of a line there that isn't really crossed, but you seem to be crossing it. Yeah, I, I am one of the rarities. There, there are a few out there that are doing exactly what I'm doing. I'm glad that I am, you know, being very successful at it. I have other actors who have won Tony Awards for co-producing and shows, and and I really don't know exactly what their paths are, but I, I seem to be keeping up my acting career with the producing career, and and that is uh, as a, a blessing. You know, I am playing the lead on this tour, but also co-producing on New York, New York, which I was supposed to be in, but I had to pull out of that show. And so, yeah, I, I feel that ever since I started producing, I feel that that's made even my acting career more uh, appealing, I guess, to producers or to casting directors. And I do feel that every actor should be a part of the investing producing process in some way, shape or form, because if you have stock in your own show, you're going to do 100% all you can do for that show. You know, you're not going to have a chip on your shoulder. You know, I have some money in this or I have some stock in this, so I need to do the best of my ability. And once producers realize if you give your actors a little piece of the pie, that they will respect that piece of the pie because it is theirs. Yeah, I mean, speaking of tours, that is something that some of the tours do. There's these things called overages, where if a show does particularly well in a city, then the yeah. cast will get a bump in their pay for that week. And it does behoove us to do a great show, to bring more people to the theater for that particular city. So th that's mm -hmm. kind of one of the ways in which giving the cast a financial stake in the success of a show, I think, can really help Yes, we want to give 100% no matter what, but it just gives another reason to continually push and push ourselves to do better in a show. Totally, yeah. I, I think the investing part, though, like, for example, I'm an investor on Ain't Too Proud. I'm here doing the show, but I'm also collecting that investment check as well. And I'm trying to push the show for, you know, do I do I try not to call out? Of course, because I don't want to cause the show any more money than uh, losses that it's, it's going to suffer from. And I am now celebrating the, you know, the London cast that's about to start. And I'm a part of that one as an investor. So it's really cool to say, oh, I pulled out of this show that I was a producer on and I'm going into this other show, which I'm an investor on. So it's like I'm in all of these shows or supporting all of these shows that I'm also in on the other side of it, too. So it's just great to support theater in every aspect, in every way. So it's really cool. As an investor, obviously, you have to have the money because you're giving it, whereas a producer, you're basically going to people and asking them for money. Both of them have their own challenges. One means you have to have the money, and the other means you have to have the balls to ask for it. Right. So <laughs> I, I, I assume it, it's a different part of your brain that has you able to do both. Yeah, I, I, I suppose. I think... Um... The longer you're in this career as we tour and do this and do that and go here and go to this regional house and and perform here, you know, just like yourself, you have now built up a clientele. And I think people don't realize that we've built a clientele. People are following your career as your career is moving on. We all have these little 
you know, fans or people just watching us as, as we grow in our industry and we are building a clientele. I think sometimes investors come to me or I go to investors who have watched my career, have watched me do investments on, on, on my own and sort of just watching how that is going on. And as I post on Instagram or post on Facebook or as they see sort of how some of these shows are successful and I have been successful at investing and producing that they go, oh, you know what? I want to be a part of that. So you are sort of, everyone is building a clientele. They're really putting their money into you. They're not really putting your, the money into the show necessarily. They're putting their faith and everything in you because they see how great your success is. So they want to be a part of that success. So that's what I feel basically producing is that you have to show people that you are doing well and that you can make good moves. And it's not just about like, hey, can you give me money for this project? People are really putting their faith in you. And in many ways, that's why being an actor can be an asset as a producer, because you understand the performance, especially if you're in the show that you're trying to get produced, then you have your own stake in it as a performer, as well as a stake in it as a producer. So that can actually be good when it comes to asking for money. Yeah. I mean, who knows the show better than the actor who's in it? That is the brilliance of it all. And I don't think too many people like understand that. I'm like, you're actually in the product that you're trying to sell. So you know the inside scoop. You know if the show is really good or if it's really bad, you know? And why would you want to support something that you know is not that great? So there are certain things that I don't produce or I don't get involved in because I'm like, uh, I don't know if I would necessarily put my money in that show. So why would I do that? That's why when I do come to someone as a producer or as an investor, um, I have my utmost faith in that show. So hopefully they will take my opinion seriously because I have been in this business for 25 years. I do know what a hit is and what a, a show that wouldn't do so well. So if I do speak from the inside out, meaning being in the cast, I'm actually saying, hey, like the script is great. The cast is great. This is amazing. And I think that you're going to benefit from this. So yeah, it is much better if you can speak from the inside of the product. I, that, that's perfect. I love that. Well, E. Clay, I always love talking to you. We had discussions in the dressing room every now and then. And so it's, it's always a joy to talk to you and pick your brain. And you've just done so much over the last few decades and such a lot of experience and wisdom. So I appreciate you sharing all that with us today. Oh, God, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you asking me to be a part of this podcast. It's, it's been amazing. You're amazing. I'm glad I've met you. I'm glad I can call you friends. And um, I can't wait to see you again. I, I can't wait to. On our 42nd Street Revival, Broadway Revival. Hello. Recording. Right, right. The cast recording. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> let's, let's keep those fingers crossed. Oh, my gosh. I hope so. Right. Exactly. I know. I know. Let's, let's hope. Thank you so much for joining E. Clay and me today. And remember, you can get access to full episodes that include E. Clay's audition story for Wonderland and his answers to the final five questions by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, now let's get to this week's comment, which comes from Ella, who sent me an email. She wrote... 
Your podcast is literal soul food to anyone in the biz struggling through the thick of it. As a multi-hyphenate myself, I especially loved your most recent episode with Michael Kushner. Life as a professional artist is a crazy, strange adventure, and love is key. Well, this was a really wonderful email, Ella, and, and I totally appreciate it. And I couldn't agree with you more. This profession we've chosen is a crazy and strange adventure with a lot of exhilarating moments and tons of uncertainty as well. And yes, love is the key throughout all of it. Love for the art of theater, love for others that we may meet and work with along the way, but most importantly, love for ourselves as we continue to push forward and make it in this business. Well, that about does it for me. I am your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and putting this podcast together, which is a production of Win Me Media, with Maria Clara Ribeiro as co-producer. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.